It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse Vladimir Putin's speech to the nation, look at the most recent intelligence reports on the situation on the ground, and discuss Russia's most recent defeats, including a bloody engagement near Volodar in the Donbass. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 21st of February, day 363. And joining me today are Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, our associate editor Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and our Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by asking Natalia for her reading of Putin's speech today in Moscow. Hi David and hi everyone. Yes, there are several things that, that are quite outstanding about this speech. Among them is the fact that this is the first time Putin is making a formal speech since he invaded Ukraine in February 20. February uh, 2022. All of the time then that the invasion has been, that fighting has been raging on, Putin has been waiting for a good moment to make his State of the Nation address. This is something that a Russian leader does every year. But all the while, apparently he was waiting for a good moment to show, to present something to Russian public, something about his victories in Ukraine. And there never was a good moment. And for the first time in his presidency, he skipped that obligatory State of the Nation address. Yes, uh, last year, and he had one this afternoon. A lot of the things were there were absolutely predictable, including his uh, blame game, including accusations against the West of uh, plotting to destroy Russia, of stoking tensions in, in Ukraine. Uh, there's one piece of news that was kind of expected, but but still uh, really worth them paying attention to. Uh, Vladimir Putin has finally, uh, formally announced that. Russia was suspending its participation in the New START Treaty, which is the world's last remaining nuclear arms control deal. And uh, that's the that's the only remaining agreement in the world right now that places a cap on nuclear warheads, and that provides for mutual inspections of nuclear arsenals, both in the US and in Russia. Now, that uh, deal has been under threats as it is. Uh, the U.S. has complained about lack of access. Those complaints date back to 2020, to the time, to the time of the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, Russia had a good excuse saying that, you know, we are not welcoming anyone while the pandemic was raging. So at the end of the day, uh, those uh, inspections have been suspended for two years, actually. And what Putin said this afternoon... He just made it clear that Russia is not going to let anyone inspect its nuclear arsenal at this point, especially, as he said, that this is the point when uh, the U.S. and NATO are talking about a Russian a Russian strategic defeat, and the way they put it. Uh, and now they want uh, to cruise around our military base. He was very careful to frame it. He said that Russia is not pulling out of the treaty. He left the door open 
for some kind of a new deal for an extension. But he said that it, it's, it was going to suspend its participation. Um, among other things that caught my attention is the fact that he tried very hard to uh, blame the war on the West, saying, quote, it was them who unleashed the war. Uh, and he spent a bit of time explaining how Russia has tried every possible dramatical, uh, diplomatic tool to resolve the issue of Eastern Ukraine and how it has failed. Uh, Joe Biden's visit in Kiev, and uh, this is something Putin has failed to mention completely. So it, it was quite remarkable that there was no, you know, he, he made no, no acknowledgments of, of, of that fact. Uh, again, there was a little about Western supplies of weapons. Unlike in the past when Putin has threatened or made veiled threats about using nuclear weapons. This time he was more careful. He The only thing he said was that the more the West supplies weapons to Ukraine and the longer range of those weapons are, the more Russia will have to defend ourselves and push those um, weapons, weapon systems away from its borders. What also struck me in that speech is that I've, I've been taking notes and this speech lasted about one hour and 45 minutes and out of that time he spoke for an hour, maybe an hour and ten minutes, about uh, domestic, uh, about the domestic agenda only, talking about roads and uh, schools and gas supply for villages, which is which I found quite remarkable because in all of the years that I've been traveling, I've been covering Putin. What we saw in recent years was the fact that Putin has been gradually losing an interest in Russian domestic affairs, and we've been seeing it. Um, uh, ever since the annexation of Crimea, and you know, you think about the crisis in Ukraine or the invasion of Syria, and Putin seemed to have found his refuge in in those big world issues that he had to deal with. And now it was a, a little bit of the other way around. Then he didn't have much to um, show. He didn't have much to boast to Russians about uh, the war in Ukraine. There were no. Obviously, there are no battlefield wins to brag about, so he had to focus on those small steps. To me, it sounded like he could not promise to the Russians that the war is going to end soon. And we know from opinion polls, however imperfect we, they are, and you know you might disbelieve them, but obviously it shows that the Russian public is looking for the world war to end, whatever it means. But by focusing on the domestic agenda, to my mind, he made it clear that the war is there. It's in the background. Uh, don't sit around and wait for it to stop. You know, we need to go about our business and fix the road. Do something about primary education. Yes, and that's that was about that. But let me know if I've missed something. I may have. It was quite a long speech. What? Not at all. I'd be curious, Natalia, did anything did anything surprise you about the speech? Anything you weren't expecting? And do we have a sense yet of how, how it's gone down in Russia? He started off by always saying uh, all of his grudges with the West that we have heard before. Expansions of, expansion of NATO, uh, humiliation of the fall of the Soviet Union, the Allied operation in Iraq. But then he moved on to domestic issues and he just kept talking for for an hour and something and it felt like um, somehow he didn't want to pick up the fights with the West or he didn't want to escalate and then suddenly he made a break and he made the announcement about the um, the nuclear arms deal. I thought it was just a very interesting combination. Maybe it's something that his speech writers did, you know, mixing and matching, matching different uh, statements that he had to give. But I, I guess that the expectation was that he would be much more aggressive and he would be also very annoyed by uh, Joe Biden's visit yesterday, but he didn't he didn't show it. And like of all of the speeches we've had, we've heard in, uh, in recent months since the war started, uh, this definitely was not the, the most, most aggressive to, to date. Well, thank you very much, Natalia. I know, I know you've got to run, so thank you so much for your time. Francis Dernley, you were also watching. What stood out to you? Well, thanks, David. I'll be honest, I found it a very dispiriting speech from a Western perspective. And of course, it was designed to be exactly that. Tonally, I thought that the first half, 
was almost indistinguishable from the ravings of a dictator of the 1930s, frankly, ranting about injustices done to the country, playing on the audience's emotions of hatred and envy. It was so clear that he is inhabiting an entirely different reality and one that is doused with factual inaccuracies and distortions, not least historical. And indeed, history was one of the pillars of of the speech. He he talked about the significance of the moment several times, not least when he said, and I quote, historic events will determine the future of our country. Each of us is bound by a huge responsibility. So he's talking about the significance of this moment in an almost existential manner. To me, this is not the rhetoric of a man looking to compromise. And he talked about how as Natalia was talking about, the commitment to peace had turned out to be a fraud from the West and a cruel lie. We were doing everything possible to solve this problem peacefully, negotiating a peaceful way out of this difficult conflict. But behind our backs, a very different scenario was being prepared. The West was just playing for time, closing their eyes to political assassinations, mistreatment of believers. And then he spoke uh, on quite a, I thought, illuminating passage about how the West had opened the way for the Nazis to to tear away Russia's historical lands and indeed for the Nazis to take power in the 1930s, which I thought was pretty extraordinary given that it actually, in many ways, what enabled Hitler for a crucial period was the uh, pact with the Soviets of 1938 onwards, but I digress. So there was this historical appeals to Russian anxieties, which was, I think, tonally the the central thrust of the first half. Also interesting, though, are the elements of this speech, which was clearly targeting at the West. And I thought it was remarkable when he was speaking about cultural issues and was trying to make it out again as an issue I've talked about in in, in the past when uh, analysing Putin's speeches, this this issue of how he tries to make it sound as if Russia has a kind of spiritual mission. And part of that spiritual mission is cleansing the sins of the West, of the wider West. And so he talked a lot about LGBT rights. He said family means a union between a man and a woman. And uh, so say the sacred texts of every religion on earth. But the West is doubting these sacred texts. We have to protect our children from degradation and degeneration. And we will. And then he talked more about the West. Look at what they do to their own people, the destruction of families, of cultural and natural identities and the perversion that is child abuse all the way up to paedophilia are advertised as the norm and priests are forced to bless same sex marriages. So he's obviously trying to appeal to the conservatism, small c conservatism of the Russian people, but also trying to appeal, I think, to certain people in the West who echo the anxieties about uh, the liberal trajectory of the West and appeal to them and say, I'm on your side. And we know that that has resonance with certain core uh, electoral cohorts and certain leaders, indeed, in the West. And so I thought that was interesting that he talked about that. Just a couple of other things I wanted to pick out. The economy, of course, unsurprisingly, he boasted about how it proved more resilient in the face of international sanctions and that GDP hadn't fallen as much as been, had been predicted. I'll come a little bit more onto that issue later in the diplomatic segment. But unsurprisingly, he was trying to big that up a lot. Uh, There was also, of course, much conversation about the enemies within and how the path of betrayal had to those who had chosen that path that they needed to be brought to justice, that they must be held accountable under the law. So, again, a threat, a a thinly veiled threat there, I think it's fair to say, of, of those in Russia who perhaps have more Western sympathies or indeed have left the country, trying to make it clear that they are not uh, not safe. And also talked as well, as, as Natalia was talking about, I think it just is worth underlining this, this nuclear issue and suspending the participation from the Strategic Offensive Reductions Treaty. That matters, given the kind of conversations we've had on the nuclear issue and may well have again in the, in the coming months. But just to conclude on this, the reactions been interesting and unsurprising of course a top US official has described them as uh, the speech as an absurdity nobody is attacking Russia there's an absurdity in the notion that Russia was under some form of military threat from Ukraine or anywhere else that's from Jake Sullivan the White House National Security Advisor 
uh, senior aide to Zelensky has said that it shows how Putin has lost touch with reality. He's in a completely different reality where there is no opportunity to conduct a dialogue about justice and international law. And I think that's, for me, the biggest takeaway from this speech is the fact that actually, if Putin really believes what he is saying here, and I know that's been one of the great open questions of this of this war ever since it started, if he really believes this, then the room for peace, the room for compromise is incredibly narrow. And I would argue that the West really needs to wake up to the fact that that. This is not a man who is going to be uh, to back down very easily. He's going to have to be forced to back down in Ukraine because his articulation of what is at stake here is existential. It's existential for him. It's existential for Russia. And if we really believe that this is existential for the West, as we keep hearing about from Joe Biden yesterday and from other Western leaders, then we need to start behaving as if it is existential because certainly Putin is. Thank you very much, Francis. And gosh, sorry, Natalia, you had to listen to almost two hours of this. Joe Barnes, Natalia mentioned in her appraisal of Putin's speech that he wasn't able to talk about battlefield victories. Uh, and, 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 and I thought that was very interesting. And I thought you'd be good to speak on this. You've been looking at some of the recent failures of the Russian forces in the Donbass. Can you talk us through what you've seen? Yeah, I, I think he is right to stay away from the battlefield goings on because it's it's not particularly looking great for Russia. We, we've we spoken quite extensively for probably a month about this kind of big Russian offensive. We're kind of expecting it to be terrifying and deploying hundreds of thousands of new troops. But um, thanks to there being a NATO summit last week, it allowed me to connect with some new and old sources that kind of delve into the, the secretive world of intelligence briefings and they let slip a few things that I can share share with our listeners to point about how the Russian offensive is actually probably going and it's not going as well as they would like it to go. So a week ago, kind of Ben Wallace said publicly, the Defence Secretary, that is, he mentioned this idea that Russia had about 97% of its army deployed in Ukraine. And that's a, that's a really important kind of point if you drill down into why it's important. We've seen the kind of vast mobilisation efforts from Vladimir Putin, uh, kind of talk of 300,000 conscripts brought in another 500,000 to come etc but instead of using these mobilized conscripts to create new forces to take part in this offensive they're instead being used to repair and plug the gaps that have been left in units uh, battalions or whatever we want to call them brigades um russian brigades inside Ukraine that have suffered from their failings and like what kind of NATO intelligence officers are seeing on the ground is that these conscripts have gone in with very minimal training very minimal equipment um, which is unlikely to have a serious uh, kind of impact on the battlefield so NATO's intelligence believes that Russia is really having this struggle to get going they've seen Russia pour vast resources in into attempting to make gains of literally 100 yards a day. One example used, and it's from, it's from about two weeks ago, is Russia lost 2,000 troops in a single weekend and literally made 200 yards, which um, is just not sustainable, even if you're bringing in kind of 100,000 troops, um, uh, conscripts in, and you're just pouring those in, they're going to kind of rot away. And we, we know Dom would probably be able to speak on this better, but a defensive military is kind of always going to have the slight upper hand unless it is truly overwhelmed. And we're just not seeing that at the moment. So then delivering a kind of picture of how they see it, kind of officials from NATO allies were saying that, yes, Ukraine is under pressure in certain areas, but Ukraine doesn't mind that because the cost of Russia maintaining that pressure is worthwhile. They're like, they are noting that, look, yes, we are under pressure in back, but yes, our troops are being pounded. It's tireless battles. But when Russia are expending that much uh, in terms of resources and manpower, and we're not actually losing that much in terms of ground, that's, that's fine fine with us. We've seen that. Um, so one person told me that I shouldn't categorise the what is going on as sort of grand offensive over the whole front by Russia. It's actually the line's very static at the moment with small localised points of pressure. And I, I guess the main ones that we can talk about are Bakhmut, uh, Volodar and Kramina. And I'll talk about Volodar later because there's a, a kind of a story about a Valentine's Day massacre that we've been able to claw together. But then going back to the intelligence briefings, people often will speak about, and the Ukrainians have spoken about it, that there's a genuine threat that Russia might be trying to build up a force strong enough in Belarus that it could launch attacks on Kiev or Lviv. But the West sees this as a distraction um, and kind of point out going, look, 
we're pretty good at intelligence. You must have remembered the kind of the pictures that we were able to publish of the nearly two hundred thousand troops sitting on the sitting on Russia's border with Ukraine before the before the invasion nearly a year ago. We, we'll see it coming, and there is talk of Russia might be starting slowly, deliberately, but ultimately, the Western opinion on this is: look, in order for the Russians to do more, they would have to their logistical chains, which they've already neatly tucked out of range of. Ukraine timars back into range of those kind of multi-launch rocket systems and artillery systems and essentially without logistical supplies near the front line Russia is going to struggle to really kind of make those advances that would be make a difference on the battlefield and then so and the Ukrainians they gave their own kind of intelligence brief to NATO allies at this summit last week and they yeah, they said they were confident uh, they said they were they were happy with how things are going. Obviously, not happy that a country's been invaded, but they they they, they kind of say, look, it's hard. But as I mentioned earlier, look, Russia is sustaining these pretty heavy losses, and we're without making much in terms of progress. So if that's their offensive, then fair play. And say so from what we can tell at the moment, Ukraine hasn't actually deployed any of its main reserve forces to limit these kind of minimal Russian gains. It's just using units that have already been deployed in areas like Bakhmut, Crimea, Volodar. Um, and then what's, what's, what's more fascinating is, um, and the, the Americans actually went on the record, you had uh, Lloyd Austin there, Defence Secretary, went and said, look, we, we're, we're not actually fueling uh, the, the kind of this big flood of Western support that's been announced in recent weeks and months, including the tanks, the Bradleys, the other infantry fighting vehicles, more howitzers for artillery, more kind of ammunition and stuff like that. That's not about fueling Ukraine's defence against this offence. Ukraine's defence against this offensive. It's actually about turning 2023 into the year of the Ukrainian offensive and time for them to kind of capitalise on all the support from Western allies. So in the kind of eyes of Western military planners, Ukraine won't be able to afford making a single push. It will have to actually launch continuous attacks against Russian positions to claw back territory. And that's going to kind of stretch. It could be, so it could start in the spring, but it's going to be something that kind of continues for months and months and months as they as they hash away at trying to reclaim land that Russia has seized and then maybe move further into the Donbass where the separatists were in control. Um, there are obviously huge challenges with Ukraine launching a, a kind of an offensive that has genuine impact on the Russian position. Ukraine has expended a serious amount of ammunition and it still is. There are known shortages across the West for things like 155mm artillery shells. Um, so... Does you will Ukraine have enough kind of firepower to start pounding after it's finished defending against these Ukraine uh, Russian offences? Will it have enough to launch its own offensive? But this obviously works both ways. Russia is constantly using and wasting shells on its what we're describing now as a botched offensive. It's going to leave itself short when it needs to defend occupied positions as well. That's a, a serious question. Um, another question that kind of looms over: Can Ukraine win land back? Um, when will Western kit arrive? When will these kind of leopard tanks from germany and other european countries when will the challenges arrive when will the abram tanks arrive when will things like the infantry fighting vehicles the american bradley's the german martyr the the uh, french amx 10 when will they arrive because they're obviously going to they're going to have probably a bigger effect on the battlefield than any of the tanks and then of course the russia still has the upper upper hand in terms of numbers of troops and equipment and from if we if we cast our mind back to the the kind of that period last summer when ukraine managed to win back about they advanced 90 kilometers in a day through the Kharkiv region uh, that was because Russia had its forces were kind of spread out they were not defending in really defensive postures now what kind of people are seeing in NATO circles is that Russia is defending with deeper formations they're actually it's going to be hard to break them down you're going to have to have to it's not a single line you're going to have to go through one line two lines three lines of dug in troops who have actually been able to use the winter to fortify their positions and I'll stop there now, and then we can go back to Volodar later. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe. You've given us a lot to uh, to chew over there, I think. Dom Nichols, can I bring you in here? Is there anything you'd like to add to Joe's analysis? And if not, can we go to your thoughts on the, the news from the start, about the START treaty that uh, Natalia Vasilieva brought to us earlier? Yeah, sure. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. All I'll uh, add to um, the comments so far is that there was very little about the, the war in Ukraine in, in Putin's speech this morning, a bit of um, saying that they'll... Russia will help all the widows uh, with sort of um, education for the kids and housing and, and all the rest of it, but 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 not very much at all. Now, 
That's not surprising, I don't think, because he can't say an awful lot. It's not a it's not a rosy picture as far as he is concerned. He can't sort of lord any fantastic uh, any victories. We, there was a question mark about whether or not they were trying to claim Bakhmut as a victory, but um, it's it's still not over in Bakhmut in the central Donbass, and it's not much of a victory even if they take it. So unsurprising. But also, I don't think we should read too much into that because this was very much a speech for a domestic audience to shore up the shore up the home team. It was not necessarily for external consumption. We read it and we get energised all this rubbish about, you know, neo-Nazis and the West and it's all NATO's fault and blah, blah, blah. We can see through that. Um, that's not for us. And actually, if we anything that we would pay particular attention to, i.e., are you concerned about your allies, Putin, um, allies, i.e. North Korea and and, um, and China to a certain extent? Um, what are you What are you saying to them? What private conversations you're having? How you How are you feeling that front is being um, Is that being held up? Um, well, actually, you got China's foreign minister King Gang in Moscow today. So all those kind of talks are happening as we speak in the Kremlin behind closed doors. So you know, I don't think we should read too much into the fact they didn't say an awful lot about uh, about defence. He, yeah, all the bluff and bluster that uh, Natalia, Joe, and Francis have talked about. But hey, we, we've heard it before. We'll hear, we'll hear it again. Uh, he can bump his gums, but we can see what the the reality is. So elsewhere, just just very quickly, is a bit of hokey cokey, diplomatic hokey cokey today. So President Biden has moved from Kiev. He's gone to Poland. He's going to address the heads of nine uh, European nations later today. Uh, Georgia Maloney, the uh, Italian Prime Minister, she is in Kiev, and she's already responded about. Uh, Putin's speech and saying it's just propaganda, quote unquote, her words, propaganda. Interestingly, now we were there were concerns that when um, Ms. Maloney won the Italian election, that her coalition included some people such as Silvio Berlusconi and his party who were who were very soft on on Putin, if not out out and out, you know, fanboys. Um, And and there was concern about, well, what's what shape is this is this new government going to take and what will the policy and attitude be towards Ukraine? Actually, um, Georgia Maloney's party is by far the biggest in that coalition. When I was in Rome last week with the Defence Secretary, (laughs) name drop, um, I was chatting to some Italian diplomats and, and they were saying, look, actually, the the, her party is by far and away the, the biggest bit, albeit within a coalition, but they are the, the largest, the largest grouping. And and so, you know, you might still get some of these noises from the far right, from Berlusconi and, and what have you, anti-Ukraine, pro-Putin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, they, she doesn't really have to factor them into account. You know, they're not going to bring down the coalition just just on that. And they're not big enough voices to to um, uh, to adjust her her position. So I thought that was very interesting from um, from the uh, Italian point of view. Now on start, start which no pun intended started off as the strategic arms reduction talks. This is limiting the number of nuclear weapons that uh, that Russia and uh, and America have. Um, so the current start uh, has been extended, or this the, it was start it was it was signed in two thousand and eleven, and the and the targets had to be met by twenty eighteen. They were met by twenty eighteen, and the current period. Um, it was a sort of rolling five-year plan. It's been extended to January 2026. But then, as Natalia said, it, it's effectively been dormant for um, for a, a year at least. There have been no inspections. But the but start says that US and Russia um, can have up to 700 deployed ICBM, that's intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, deployed and deployed SLBM, so submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and heavy bombers deployed as well that are equipped to carry nukes. So so 700 of those plus um, up to 1,550 nuclear warheads on those missiles. And then as well, they can have another, each side can have another 800 deployed and non-deployed ICBM, as in the, the, the missiles, the, the um, submarine launch missiles and nuclear bombers. So there was a little bit of fudge factor which allows for... Um, for new capable new new missiles to be brought into service, um, which again has to be notified to the other side. But the, but that that sort of eight hundred figure was to take into account the the sort of day to day management of of these things as you move military capabilities around the world. So that because it is so serious, they do not want to have any accusation that it that you're in breach of start. So that eight hundred was a was a bit of a fudge. But those are, those are the figures. Um, in addition to that, each side were allowed eighteen on-site inspections per year of the other side and for the last uh, certainly certainly calendar year 2022 there were none uh, either side 
And there was also um, biannual data exchanges. So new new missiles, new technology coming in, new launchers, all that data, all those data, sorry, data is plural, um, all those data were supposed to be exchanged with the with the other side. All of that is effectively kind of broken down. And it is it is not good news at all that, that START um, looks to be fracturing because even in the darkest days of the Cold War, there was always a way of reaching out and touching uh, in 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 the uh, in all bar the most extreme circumstances, and that's why that's where Start came about, because there has to be a way of of talking about this kind of stuff if these things are going to are going to exist. So just to finish this point, let's have a quick a quick one rundown on on where the nukes are. This comes from the Federation of American Scientists. So we think the total scores on the doors are the U.S. We think have five and a half thousand uh, nuclear weapons, as in the warheads. Five and a half thousand. Russia six thousand. China 350, UK 225, France 290, Pakistan 165, India 160, Israel 90, North Korea 20, Iran, I've just put a question mark. We don't know. They're getting very close to being able to um, enrich uranium to, to the point that it can go on a weapon. So, so we don't know. Um, watch this space. So not a great day. Not a great day um, in terms of Natalia having to listen to a boring speech for two hours and not a great day because if start fractures, that will be um, that that is very serious. Jens Stoltenberg has commented on it. He says, quote, I regret the decision by Russia to suspend its participation in the new start program. So, you know, it it does matter. We should take account of it. It doesn't mean there's going to be a nuclear arms race tomorrow. But, you know, these things are there for a reason and as they are chipped away and this 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 means as i say of reaching out and touching the the other side even when you have extreme differences of opinion to the point that you are you know, f- funding a war uh, supplying a war then it is not is not good when these things collapse um yeah i'll i'll I'll, tell you, I'll i'll leave it there there's a couple of other bits and bobs thanks very much dom just out of interest are nuclear weapons recorded in your sort of big book of armies that you consult if we ask you you know how many tanks does thailand have or or is that not included in in that by the big book of tanks do you mean the international institute for strategic studies military balance the the go to yes, reference that, yes, that one that yes one, yeah, the big book of tanks yes yes nuclear weapons are are in there and i uh, and so you know ask me a question and i'll be able to scurry off and, and find the answer Thank you very much, Dom Nichols. Uh, Francis, you mentioned there's quite a few more diplomatic updates you want to bring us. Uh, do you want to talk us through what, what you've been looking at? Sure. Well, I said uh, I was feeling a bit dispirited earlier, David, and another reason for that are the remarks by the Chinese ambassador to the US. So this morning, he has blamed the US for escalating the war in Ukraine by pouring weapons into the battlefield. Chin Yang, uh, China's ambassador, has accused America of being the greatest obstacle to global peace amid concerns from Washington that Beijing might provide Moscow with military aid. Beijing is apparently deeply worried, that's a direct quote, that the situation could spiral out of control. Now, of course, this all comes in the context of Beijing striking a no-limits partnership with Moscow last year and has still, even at this stage, refrained from condemning Russia's invasion. The quote in full is, we urge certain countries to immediately stop fueling the fire. Stop hyping up today Ukraine, tomorrow Taiwan. And we're also expecting there to be a significant speech from President Xi Jinping to be delivered on Friday that marks the anniversary where he will perhaps say similar remarks. And the reason I find this so dispiriting is it seems to me that China is still unable to look beyond the might is right argument. How can America be escalating a war that didn't start and to which the international rule-based order to which China is supposedly a member of is at stake. I I find it extraordinary to be framing the war in this manner, frankly, and quite distressing that it continues to do so. And I do unfortunately think it's a failure of Western strategy to not call China out more equivocally on this. I mean, the fact is, is that China are playing both sides. That's been clear for a long time now in terms of how it's dealings with um, European countries, saying one thing about how it's lamenting what Russia has done in in private conversations and then publicly still lauding the the, the relationship with Russia. I mean, which is it? And at the end of the day, if China are saying one thing and doing another, then there should be consequences of them doing that. I see no 
virtue in just sort of accepting it as being part of a rhetorical game when lives are at stake here. And I think that President Zelensky is right when he was talking yesterday that there needs to be much more focus on China's role in this war. He said that he felt it was important that China doesn't support the Russia Federation. He said he'd like it to be on our side. At the moment, however, I don't think that is possible. But I do see an opportunity for China to make a pragmatic assessment of what is happening here. Because if China allies itself with Russia, there will be a world war. And I do think that China is aware of that. Well, if China are aware of that, then I think they need to be much more cautious about the way which they are enabling Russia and have been effectively been given a blank check by the West to do uh, what it likes with its relationship with Russia without really facing the threat of economic consequences for doing so. And this does, of course, come on the back of China's top diplomat uh, arriving in Moscow for talks on a possible peace plan for Ukraine. So they're having conversations of what that peace plan will look like. I think that'll be interesting to see what they come out with. I think we can we can assume. And also the remarks of the EU's foreign policy chief on Monday warning China against providing Russia with weapons for its war in Ukraine, which is the next anxiety that the West have is that is what's happening what, what could happen next is that China provide weapons to Ukraine to um, Russia forgive me so I think this is a really anxious moment and for months now and I remember very uh, in one of the very first episodes of the year I, I was sort of trying to drum home the point that I felt that unless it was made clear to China to Pakistan to India to these countries that are on the fence what the consequences would be if they backed Russia in this that there was a very strong chance that they would continue to work with Russia and can and go even further in their support of Russia. And unfortunately, I fear that might be where we're at. Thanks, Francis. Joe, can I bring you in quickly just to comment on China? And then, as you mentioned earlier, it'd be quite good to zoom into one of these failed offensives uh, near Volodar that you've been looking at. Yeah, so on, on, on China, it's interesting. So NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg this morning, he echoed the kind of the US and European concerns that China could one day supply weapons to Russia. Well, I think we should we should take a bigger look out of that and the 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 kind of attitude on ukraine had prompted people to look at wider strategic and tactical kind of relationships and actually western governments uh through nato for the eu are actually looking at china as now as a threat rather than sort of this kind of strategic partner that they might have to one day do a bit of wrangling with so they they look at china going china's like eating up and trying to harvest vast amounts of natural resources that are used in um Things like building electric cars and new green technologies. Um, it is uh, buying up shipping and distribution lanes as part of that through buying, say, ports in Greece or wherever. It is just basically looking at trying to cement its place as the world's main superpower. And Europe, uh, the US and other people are very obviously concerned about that. And then you've got the Taiwan element to all of this and basically could Xi Jinping carry out this invade Taiwan which like Vladimir Putin Ukraine thinks that it belongs to Beijing and not its own independent state there are talks that he might try to do that before 2027 so yeah look it's China is not just uh, an issue for in the immediate future it's actually that is probably after the war in Ukraine comes to an end and the West has basically helped Ukraine win the, the minds are going to soon focus on China, and that is going to be the next big issue. Um, and yeah, I will speak through a sort of a short analogy from one of the recent battles near Volodar. Um, and so Russia effectively lost one of its most devastating battlefield weapons, um, attempting to launch a, a Valentine's Day attack. But it essentially got stuck in a minefield outside Volodar. And so... Um, for those of you who don't know, Volodar is an eastern town. It's a coal mining town in the Donetsk region, and it is one of the main sort of targets that Russia has poured resources into as part of its offensive. Um, and so there's this fantastic kind of drone footage of the aftermath of this Valentine's Day massacre as uh, we've built it, and it shows the um, explosive wreckage of a TOS-1A, which is a thermobaric rocket launcher, which uh, essentially fires rockets that are believed to be able to melt human organs. Um, but wider in this, as, as part of kind of Involodar, it's, it's a town on a hill. The Ukrainian troops are well embedded in fortified positions in kind of 
the coal mine and other industrial buildings and stuff. But it's surrounded by kind of these wide open plains. So Ukrainian forces have great kind of uh, visuals over these plains. The plains are also very heavily mined. And so um, Ukrainian forces sort of, they appeared to on this single day, believed to be Valentine's Day, destroyed at least 30 um, Russian armoured vehicles, many of them that became stranded in the minefield trying to launch this assault on Volodar. And so yesterday, I don't know if it was mentioned, because um, I caught up in the whole Brexit furore and haven't had to listen back to you guys yet. So yesterday, the MOD said, look, Russia's elite 155th and 40th Naval Infantry Brigades have sustained very heavy losses in Volodar and are likely combat ineffective. So it's kind of this uh, suddenly push, Russian push to take this coal mining town is starting to lose its lose its wills and actually it's probably going to turn into another backmut where heavily fortified Ukrainian positions will slowly turn Russian onslaughts into kind of a meat grinder where vehicles and men will be forced over these kind of wide open plains and just receive a hail of artillery and bullets that they won't last very long in and i'll stop there because i know francis wants to speak more very 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 quickly before francis dom um do you have any thoughts on this tos 1a thermobaric rocket launcher um from a military perspective yeah, I mean, they're, they're pretty nasty stuff. I don't know about the melting organs bit, but they, they create an, an intense overpressure. So you fire them at buildings or uh, or cave complexes and what have you, and it, and it just it creates a, an enormous overpressure inside that structure, which is, um, I don't know the exact effect on the human body, but it but it ain't good. And they are, they're increasingly being used. Um, I mean, we saw them when they, when they rolled out, when Russia brought them into the Ukraine theatre, and they are... I mean, you know, tanks kill people, guns kill people, bayonets, all the rest of it. So, so we, yes, the nature of death is is disgusting, but we shouldn't focus too much on it as a, um, you know, it is, it is vulnerable on the battlefield as we, as we've seen. It's a it's a horrific weapon of war, but then you know, most weapons of war are pretty horrific. And that's their that's their point. Um, it's good to it's good to remove it from the battlefield. It's good to remove them all from the battlefield. I don't think we should should dwell too much on on that. Um, I will just make one point, if I, if I may. So, obviously, like many other media organisations, we're doing a lot of um, reflection this this week, coming up for the the anniversary of uh, the start of this phase of, of the war. And I just want to make the point that um, that it, Russia they are making very slow advances. They are their tactics have been to shove people at it, and they don't care for the human cost, the butcher's bill. They don't mind that as long as they're going forward, as long as the little line on the map continues to inch further further west. They're quite, they're quite happy. So for all their vaunted military capability, which I don't think is very good, and I think we, we are witnessing the, the so-called spring offensive by Russia, I think this is all they're capable of doing. But they are happy to do that. And they could, if they want to go for a second mobilisation, they could get many, many more people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to do this. So, So we should be cautious about saying, Oh, they're rubbish. They can't. They can't do anything on the battlefield. They're going to lose this war. I mean, you know, I, I hope they do. But we've just got to be cautious. And not only do I make that point because they are they they are seemingly content to shove people at this for the small gains each life, you know, wins them. They are content to do that. But also, they have shown the occasional flash of military, certainly competence, and you know, it, it pains me to say it, but military. Uh, genius might be too strong a word, but look at Hezon. Look at look at the um, look at how they got out of Hezon. Numbers differ, but we saw we had Ben Barry from the IISS, the big the big book of tanks, uh, International Institute for Strategic Studies. He spoke to us last week and said the numbers could be up to as many as forty thousand Russians that got back over the Dnipro River, um, concealed. I mean, now we don't know how hard Ukraine tried to follow them up to to harry them into the river. Uh, an army going in reverse, going backwards, is is always a dangerous place to be. It's very easy to turn that into a rout. So we don't know how hard Ukraine pushed because they would have lost people doing so. But it, but even so, you know, it did take us by surprise. That that operation was executed with skill, and now that might have been Sorovkin's plan, and Sorovkin might have wanted to preserve his combat power go backwards where necessary in order to come back in the future uh, in, a, in a much more capable form. Luckily, I think that seems to have not won favour in the in the Kremlin. And Putin said, no, 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 you've got to keep going forward and, and sack Sorovkin. There's more to it, of course. We know that there was a power play with Gerasimov and Prigozhin and Kadyrov and all that kind of stuff. But no, Sorovkin, uh, he, was, he was the guy in charge, General Sorovkin. 
he got that right, I think. And yeah, I can't imagine he's the only person in Russian military uniform who is capable of putting together a decent operational plan like that. So, you know, it might not happen every day of the week, but we've just got to be careful. They do. They can occasionally show that they do know what they are doing and they are content just to push forward at great cost to themselves with no moral consideration. So we just just take a moment to, ref- to reflect. I, I urge. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Dom. Francis, I know there's one more update from you, and then I'll go to everybody just for your final thoughts. Uh, Francis, don't Thanks, David. Well, I said I would talk again about Russia's economy off the back of Putin's speech. And also, this matters too in relation to the broader China discussion, which we've touched on today. Russian exports of discounted crude and fuel oil to China jumped to record levels last month, as Putin, of course, has been trying to circumvent the Western sanctions against Moscow. It's a past a record set in April 2020. China is now toe-to-toe with India as the biggest buyer of Russian crude after the war has reshaped the global energy deals. This is an example, of course, of how this if there had perhaps it had been made clearer to China earlier what the consequences of doing this would be perhaps they wouldn't have risked doing so so this is a, a, an exact example of what I was talking about earlier so we have an economy here that is being supported by China and by other nations who are willing to essentially circumvent Western sanctions or even if they are buying it at a discounted rate it is economically prosperous for them to do so because china is being sorry russia is being forced to sell this at at a a rate which is considerably lower uh, what they would have normally have expected to be earning for this but the reason i bring it back to this is this has we keep coming back to this question of the importance of the of the russian economy and Yes, I think it is fair to say that the sanctions have not had the desired effect in the short term. And that is why, of course, Putin made such a deal of it in his speech. But and and, and speaking to that, there's, of course, evidence that the Russian economy will actually grow in the next year. Yes, it will contract in places, but that it will actually technically grow. But and I want to keep coming back to this point. Over the long term, I have not read a piece of analysis, whether that be pieces by academics, whether that be by um, uh, um, economists in governments that have said that this is sustainable for the Russian economy long, long term to this complete severance from from the West. I was reading one piece that was saying that uh, the war has lopped off $190 billion worth off the Russian economy in a delayed reckoning. Of course, the famous Yale paper, which talks so much about what the long term ramifications of this are. The EU has also published a paper on this. So I think, again, I come back to this point that what we are seeing is we are seeing an economy that has managed to buttress itself in the short term to delay an inevitable collapse in the hope that in this window where the economy still seems strong, that Western resolve does with way or the Ukrainian battlefield changes in a way that is favourable to Russia. In a sense, they have bought themselves time. But how much time is an open question, of course, would depend on these allies of Russia, or at least countries that are willing to deal with Russia, and how far they are willing to go and feel they are able to go because the West is allowing them to to do so. All of this reminds me of a really fascinating book by Adam Tooze uh, called Wages of Destruction, which is all about the Nazi economy, not the most... Um, scintillating of subjects it has to be said but this book is absolutely vital for understanding the Third Reich and how it operated because it operated essentially through uh, necessity in terms of the it talks about how the economy was structured in a way that meant that it could only really do war that was all it could do and it wasn't able to gear away into another direction and so even if it had desired to go into another uh, economic future of some kind that it had geared itself so much towards war and particularly to conquest that that is all it could do but of course the flip side of that was is that when things started to go wrong in the war space it had no other options hence why it's called the wages of destruction so i uh, say so there are, i don't want to make it sound as if the, the comparisons are, are completely exact of course they're not but it reminded me of that argument so that economies that are geared in this way are shaped in this way by war uh, have uh, positives for the countries concerned in the short term but almost always they have negative consequences but as i say how long that will be remains to be seen 
All right, let's go to our final thoughts. Uh, Joe Barnes, uh, what will you be looking at uh, the rest of this week? What do you want our listeners uh, to pay particular attention to and understand? Um, I'm very much uh, back on the Brexit beat, but I won't bore you with that. Um, I, what, I, what I'd, I'd think of um, and to look at in the week leading up to Friday, uh, the one-year anniversary of Vladimir Putin's invasion on Ukraine, um, would actually to be that we're, we're going to see them the kind of the West at the moment is saying, look, we're with Ukraine for as long as it goes, but that is always going to run and it will bounce up and down of levels of support. Um, so I, 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 I'd suggest that we look at probably people, Western officials, posturing about the idea of um, negotiations and how to how, how to bring this kind of war to an end. And um, I'd recommend that people go away and if you have kind of 10 minutes where you're bored at work and uh, try and catch up with Jack Watlin's piece for Rusi. And he, he basically said that, look, the, the question is not what concessions Ukraine should eventually make. People have suggested that maybe they should concede some territory in the Donbass in exchange for peace. Um, but they should be looking how to compel Russia to negotiate in the first place. Um, and ultimately, Russia needs to be in a position where it not only listens to what Ukraine wants to offer, because Ukraine will probably ultimately, it doesn't want to, but inevitably will give some sort of military concession in exchange for peace and not allow the Kremlin to just take that back to Moscow, bank that compromise, bank that concession, and then later come back to the negotiating table and offer more. So we've got to look at ensuring that the West's feet are kind of held to the fire and keeping support for Ukraine going as long as possible to give them the best and the strongest hand when, it, when negotiations inevitably come at some stage. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, uh, Joe. Francis Sternley. Well, thanks, David. I'm conscious I've spoken a lot today, but there is a lot happening in the diplomatic space, obviously. And something I just wanted to draw attention to is, of course, Alexei Navalny, the sort of opposition leader imprisoned in in Russia. been quite a significant statement from him. And it's significant because it deviates slightly from previous statements that he has made, which has led many from Ukraine and others to uh, criticise him, particularly on the issue of Crimea. And I should say that everything I'm about to say here is caveated with the fact that this could well be Navalny pivoting himself to where he feels he needs to be rather than what he really thinks, that the conversation, as it says, as, as it were, has moved on. So I don't want people to say that I'm all in behind Navalny by saying this, but I do think that what he's said here is pretty remarkable and be hard to disagree with in a lot of the analysis that he's written down. So what he's done is he's on the eve of the anniversary of the full-scale and unprovoked invasion, I'm reading it here, I've summarised a political platform of mine and hopefully of many other decent people, 15 theses of a Russian citizen who desires the best for their country. Now, I won't read all of them, but one of them is that Putin has unleashed an unjust war of aggression against Ukraine under ridiculous pretexts. He's trying to make this a people's war. Number two, the real reasons for this war are the political and economic problems within Russia, uh, Putin's desire to hold on to power at any cost, and his obsession with his own historical legacy. Talks about how tens of thousands of innocent Ukrainians have been murdered. Uh, Number four, Russia is suffering a military defeat. Number five, what are Ukraine's borders? And this is really significant. He says, they are similar to Russia's. They're internationally recognised and defined in 1991. Russia also recognised these borders back then and it must recognise them today as well. There is nothing to discuss here. Well, that's significant because previously he talked about Crimea as being something that seemingly when it was seized by Russia would thereby belong to Russia but clearly here he is saying that no the 1991 border stand which does not include Crimea so that is a shift and that is significant I think Uh, number six Russia must leave Ukraine alone and allow it to develop the way its people want number seven together with Ukraine the US the EU and the UK we must look for acceptable ways to compensate for the damage done to Ukraine number eight war crimes committed during this war must be investigated in cooperation with international institutions. Number nine, talking about how it's nonsense that Russians are inherently imperialistic. Belarus is also involved in this war against Ukraine. Uh, They do not have an imperial mindset, but he goes on and talks about why, how Putin has corrupted what, uh, and, and has misled people and lied to them. And he says, let me re-emphasize that after the war, we have to reimburse Ukraine for all the damage committed by Putin's aggression. 
Number 13, we need to dismantle the Putin regime and its dictatorship. Number 14, we need to establish a parliamentary republic based on the alternation of power through fair elections. And 15, finally, recognising our history and traditions, we must be part of Europe and follow the European path of development. We have no other choice, nor do we need any. So, as I say, I think it's important to caveat this by saying this may be for what he needs to say in order to win round Western public opinion behind him uh, as still the de facto opposition leader in Russia. It does mark a shift. How sincere that is, I don't know. But I think it is interesting here that a lot of these points are, of course, what the ones that the West have been making now very strongly and few other uh, Russian voices have been making. And so I think that it is a significant intervention. And if who knows what happens in the long term, if Navalny is in a position of political power one day, then no doubt this will shape how he views a lot of this um, uh, this period in, in Russian history. Well, thank you, Joe and Francis. Um, Dom Nichols, would you like the final thoughts to end the podcast? Sure. Thanks, David. So um, just recently, we've been talking a lot of stockpiles and how for how long the current rate of expenditure, particularly of artillery ammunition, can go on. So news coming out of NATO now. I'm just reading a press release coming out of NATO. So Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, has been meeting with Dmitry Kaleba, who's Ukraine's foreign minister, and who is it, Borrell, the EU's High Commissioner for Foreign Affairs and Security. They have been talking about ramping up production and uh, and said that NATO is going to assist Ukraine develop a procurement system that is effective, transparent and accountable. So a horrible wonkish terminology there. But he goes on to say they're going to convene a meeting of NATO, the EU and Ukrainian procurement experts to see what they can do. NATO has been trying to uh, ramp up production for months and sets, as Mr. Sonnenberg says, NATO does set the standard for ammunition and equipment for all the allies. So as we've seen Ukraine trying to transition to NATO caliber and weaponry away from uh, sort of Russian, former Soviet weaponry, then this, this shows a deepening of that. Uh, done a survey of munition stockpiles and is going to increase our targets for munition stockpiles, uh, give defense industry the long-term demand signal. So it sounds as if um, it sounds as if NATO is trying to get deeper with the EU and and Ukraine about a longer term or, or the long term procurement process for ammunition that we've been been seeking for a while. So those are the, just the, the raw details. No other no dates or numbers or anything like that on there. But it but it it, it is the knitting together at the top level that we uh, that is necessary before we start getting into the 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 sort of brass tacks and, and numbers of artillery. So I think that's that's a positive step in terms of procurement. Sorry, I know we're just wrapping up, David, but just one final thought that occurs to me. I'm aware that, of course, I've talked a lot about the role of China today. um, And I just think it's important to make one more point, which is that I think that the West have, in exchange for uh, Xi talking to Putin about dialing down the nuclear rhetoric, that that was an exchange for essentially letting China do whatever else it wanted in Russia. Now, that may well be seen as uh, have been seen at the time as a worthy exchange. And it did, I think. Uh, stop Putin from talking about the nuclear threat. But will it return? We don't know. But I just think it, it's, it's it's an open question, this, about the, the, what's been happening behind closed doors uh, in terms of conversations between Western diplomats and, and, and Chinese ones, and one that hopefully one day we'll have an answer to when all of the archives are open. But I suppose the the broader question is here is how much has the West given to China in exchange for, for getting Russia to damp things down, which may all prove to be completely irrelevant when we get to the stage of later in the war when Putin, no no doubt, will start talking about the nuclear threat once again. So sorry, David, I know you wanted to end, but I just uh, I thought it was important to throw that in, given we've talked so much about China today. And I think that that's a really pivotal to understanding China's role in the war. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.